You are listening to the Transforming India podcast jointly brought to you by the Deepak and Neera Raj Center on Indian Economic Policies at Columbia University and the Times of India. I am Arvind Panagariya, director of the Raj Center and professor of economics at Columbia. My co-host on this podcast is Professor Praveen Krishna. He is a professor of international economics and business at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome Praveen. Hi Arvind, delighted to join you again for the fourth episode of this podcast as we continue to discuss Indian economic policies. Originally in this episode we had planned uh, to continue our discussion from the last episode and discuss free trade agreements but some new developments have just happened in the Indian economy. We have had GDP numbers which look quite interesting and I thought we will deviate from original plan and discuss today the current economic situation. And for that, I have a surprise for you. I have here your co-author. Uh, <laughs> it is uh, Dr. Sajid Chinoy. He is the India Chief Economist at JP Morgan in Mumbai. Sajid, uh, are you there? I'm very much, Arvind. Great to be uh, here. Wonderful. It's very welcome on the podcast. Great. Terrific to have you on, Sajid. Uh, and let me start by asking and observing that, as we all know, the India growth story for the past five years has been a kind of a very reasonably impressive one with growth at about seven and a half percent for the past five years. But in the last couple of quarters, there's been a bit of a slowdown. And now we have recently released data for quarter one of 2019-2020, giving us a GDP growth of just five percent. I thought we'd start by asking you what your views were on the sources of this decline in economic growth. Is it broadly a decline in consumption demand? Is it more specifically a decline in just kind of manufacturing demand, perhaps? Because you see that manufacturing gross value added grew only by 0.6% in the first quarter of 2019-2020. So what are your views on this? Uh, thanks, Ravin. Great question. So I think it's fair to say that a lot of the stress, as you alluded to, is concentrated within manufacturing. Over the last four quarters, manufacturing growth uh, plummeted from to just 0.6% from over 12% in the corresponding quarter uh, a year ago. Now, remember, manufacturing accounts for just about 16% of GD, Indian GDP, uh, but a 60% of the slowdown in headline GDP over the last four quarters. So there has been a disproportionate stress in the manufacturing sector. But I want to also kind of emphasize this is not just limited to manufacturing. If one were to look at GDP X manufacturing, growth gone over the last four quarters from 7.2% to 5.9%. So while most of the stress is in manufacturing, the slowdown is a little bit more broad-based than that. Construction in particular uh, uh, has fallen sharply from almost 10% for quarters ago to less than 6%. So let me summarize by saying a lot of the slowdown is in the goods sector. Services have slowed uh, more slowly. A lot of the stress is in manufacturing and autos in particular. But this is a broader slowdown over the last four to five quarters. Hmm. Sajid, let's focus a little bit on, on manufacturing for the moment. Now, auto industry itself says that it is about half of manufacturing. And the slowdown in auto industry itself, according to them, is easily more than 20%, meaning that the growth is negative 20%. If one takes these two numbers on the face of it, that would say that auto alone is contributing a decline of 10 percentage points uh, in manufacturing. 
what that would then say is that because the aggregate growth rate still is positive 0.6%, there has been more than 20% growth in the remaining half of the manufacturing because it has to neutralize the decline in auto. That seems a bit bizarre. Is it that we are overestimating both the decline in auto industry as well as the share of auto in manufacturing? That's a great question, Arvind. I'm a bit skeptical of this claim that autos are 50% of manufacturing value add. If you look at the IP data, autos are between 7 to 10% of manufacturing. If you look at the GDP data, I'm sure it's about 10% of, uh, of manufacturing. So even if one were to extrapolate that direct impact is about 10% of manufacturing, but there are indirect impacts, uh, other linkages, I would stretch that to at most 15 or 20% of manufacturing. Uh, so that's the first point. The second point is in the specific quarter that we're discussing, if I look at the auto production numbers, they've contracted by about 11%. Now, a lot of that uh, passenger vehicles are down by about 12%, commercial vehicles are bit more by 15%, two-wheelers by 10%. Because two-wheelers are the bulk of the auto sector, but in value-added terms are not as large, on a value-added weighted basis, one can say, that that sector has contracted around you know, 14 to 15%. Now, if you put these numbers together to say, in this particular quarter, uh, uh, auto sector value add is contracted 15%, uh, and its contribution to manufacturing is 15 to 20%, you get a much more sensible number. Non-auto manufacturing is therefore growing at about 3.5%, which to me syncs with the other high-frequency data. I mean, there's so much emphasis on autos and the urban area. I want to highlight that a lot of the disappointments the last three to six months actually has been the rural economy. If you look at earnings in the latest quarter, a lot of the companies exposed to the rural economy actually have witnessed earnings slowdown. And consumer non-durable, which is perhaps the best proxy of the rural economy, is growing somewhere between 4 to 5%. So to summarize, a lot of pressure in, on autos. But the decline is 15%. The share of autos in manufacturing is between 10 and 20. Non-auto manufacturing has also slowed, but is growing somewhere between 3 and 5% as best we can tell. Great, Sajid. So just to push this point about the broad kind of decline in, in consumption demand, let's say, kind of across sectors, it seemed that there was a, one element of inconsistency that kind of stood out, which was that if you look at electricity consumption, electricity in that quarter seems to have grown 8.6%. You've got growth in other services like hotels, transportation, communication, which adds up to together they're about 7.1%. So do you see this as inconsistent with a generalized decline in consumption, or is this within the realm of the noise within the data? So these are two very important aberrations that one should address, because consumption on the expenditure side has slowed meaningfully from 7% to 3%, and the question is how do you reconcile that on the supply side, where, as you pointed out, both electricity and trade, transport, hotel, communication are still robust. I think electricity has an idiosyncratic story to it, uh, if you recall, the onset of the monsoon this year was quite late. Even the year-on-year -year numbers don't account for that. And part of the robustness in the electricity growth for that quarter is simply looking at a extended summer in 2019 versus 2018. By August, you're already seeing the electricity production numbers come off quite meaningfully. So I think there is a sector-specific story there. Mm -hmm. On trade, transport, hotel, communications, I take your point. Growth is still 7%. That has always been a high growth sector. 
And therefore, if you take kind of a four-quarter moving average of the sector, given the idiosyncrasies of one particular quarterly data point, if you smooth that out and look at a four-quarter moving average going back the last three years, you will notice quite a discernible slowing. In 2016, that same sector was growing at about 10%, and by 2019, it dipped to just about 7 Let me just quickly give my thoughts on consumption. The sense is that there clearly is a slowdown in consumption. Key is to identify what the drivers of that are. And in my mind, there are both cyclical factors uh, and there are structural factors. I think the cyclical factors everybody has identified. Remember, a lot of this MBFC lending was going to finance or levers consumption, basically filling in the vacuum that public sector banks had, had left. And what you're seeing is a complete drop-off in that lending because you've seen uh, a lot of risk aversion towards that sector. That's one cyclical factor that hopefully should recover in time. The second is that autos had, after a very good run, begun to slow. And there was some regulatory tightening in 2018. Two-wheelers, for example, saw their insurance premium go up 8 to 10%. Uh, for passenger vehicles, there was the migration to new emission norms. I think those are drivers that reverse. For me, the, the bigger worry about consumption is twofold. One is even over the last six years, household saving rates have come down from 23% to 17%. And the counterpart of this is if you look at consumer debt. Consumption debt has gone up from 11% of GDP to almost 16% of GDP in four years. What that tells me is a lot of the strong consumption that we have been seeing in the last four or five years was in fact financed either by leverage or by running down your savings. Now, if that's the backdrop, and then you're hit by an income shock of the kind you are the last six to nine months, um, the question mark is, you know, uh, worried about future income prospects and having run down their savings, will households still go back to the old consumption pattern, or will there be some precautionary savings? I think the RBI survey that came out recently is very revealing, where it talks about consumer perceptions of income and spending their perceptions of spending are still very strong, but their perceptions of income have come off very sharply. So that may explain why, even if consumption recovers, it may not go back to the kind of growth rates we saw the last three, four years. And I'll end by saying there's a rural element here that we, we, I think some of us miss, which is because food inflation has come off so much, much more than non-food inflation, the terms of trade that farmers have to face have been declining over the last you know, uh, eight or nine years. And at some point, that was going to hurt rural purchasing power. And I think that's also contributing to the, to the consumption. So I think it's a much more complicated story. Some of it is cyclical. Some of it could be a little bit more structural. Sajid, just one simple question. You know, you say that savings have declined. Consumption has also declined as a proportion of income. Where is the money going? So I think essentially, until recently, consumption had held up quite well. So I think the consumption slowdown, as you rightly pointed at the beginning, is just a two-quarter story. If I go back, you know, average consumption over the last four or five years was very strong. So I think the issue was in the last five years, consumption to GDP was rising. Consumption was holding up well. Consumer debt was rising, fueled by some of the NDSCs, and savings rates are falling down. Now we're seeing consumption fall the last two, three quarters, and the question is, will there be some precautionary increase in savings? I would expect when this year's data comes out, we'll see household savings rate actually pick up a little bit. But it should have already, right? Because also when, so we see some rise up in the investment yes. rate. 
uh, investment as a proportion of the GDP has also, even in this very tepid quarter, risen to 29% from 27%. So, so there has got to be something going on with the savings as well, which is on the positive side. I think the savings rate had fallen a lot. We, we've seen a marginal pickup in FY18. We don't have the data by FY20. When we get that, we expect for that to move up a little bit. So that is the counterpart here, that if household savings rates are forced to go up to repair their balance sheet, it means our future prospects for consumption will have to be accordingly marked down just a tad. Right. But, you know, in a way, though, that if, if we uh, think in terms of the growth, most of the growth models would actually say that what you need to do is raise savings and raise investment. And so looking at from that perspective, and remember that till 2007-8, the savings and investment rates were well into mid-30%, uh, meaning 35-36% of the GDP. And that was a period of very high growth. So at least one school of thought would say that, look, you know, the savings and investment rates have to rise up back to somewhere uh, close to 35, 36% of the GDP. Uh, so can one not argue that actually this is a change which maybe is underway right now? It shows up as a slowdown and decline in the consumption demand. But maybe the savings rate are beginning to move back up to where they used to be in 2007, 8 I mean, I completely agree. India has to grow at 8 to 9% for a decade. This will have to be on the back of strong export growth because if investment has to go up, then savings will have to go up. Otherwise, the current account debt will balloon. But if savings has to go up, then consumption will inevitably have to decline. Uh, but if consumption is declining, why would the investment rate go up? Well, it will only go up if there's another source of demand, and that's export. The only countries in the world that have grown close to double digits for a decade has, are those that have relied on this combination of exports and investment. This may well be a healthy rebalancing of the economy. Savings rates go up, uh, creating the conditions for new investment. Uh, consumption will have to fall, which is not a bad thing. It's just important that in tandem, India is doing the things to make our exports competitive, so they become the incremental source of demand just as in the case between 2003 and 2008. What would you recommend in terms of either policy actions or reforms to boost things in the short run and with the, with the longer term in view? Yeah. So I, I think there are three, three paths to the slowdown implicit in what we discussed. One is a clearly a cyclical element. The fact that we've been below six for two quarters suggests output gaps have opened up and it's clearly a cyclical element to it. Uh, the second is why people are getting worried on shore is I think there are three reasons, and I think it's important for the government to identify those reasons to decide the course of action. One is we haven't seen consumption slow in a decade. So, you know, India always thought consumption was the last man standing. And to see it slow, which as we've discussed, may not be a bad thing, has got some people spooked. The second is at a time when the global economy in 2017, 18, and even the first quarter of 19 was doing reasonably well, um, uh, the fact that India has slowed has also uh, created some concern. But most importantly, I think we're seeing uh, business sentiment actually flag a little bit. We're not seeing animal spirit. It's this vicious cycle of sentiment and activity that I think poses a challenge going forward. So what can the government do? I think in the near term, there's a cyclical component, which is uh, I think more steps should be taken to ensure that monetary policy easing transmits to the broader economy. But I think more transmission can happen in the to the banking system, which is the heart and soul of the economy, I think the government, to its enormous credit, 
has eschewed any fiscal stimulus despite massive pressure. It's important that we hold the line in fiscal. So I think in the near term, the focus should be how do you improve the transmission of the rate cuts that have happened. I still believe that some kind of asset quality review will be required to break the logjam in the NBFC sector. The issue there, the market failure there is one of asymmetric information where lenders cannot distinguish between the good apples and the bad apples, and therefore they've basically uh, avoided lending to any apple. So I think an HUR will be necessary uh, to break that logjam to ensure uh, the well-capitalized liquid NBFCs attract money. Now, there is a concern legitimately that this may spawn panic, but I don't think it will have to if it's, if it's designed correctly. It's just that it's already been one year and we're seeing no offtake. So there's an opportunity cost of every quarter passing by that NBFC uh, uh, lending blinds to all. I think the second uh, action is on sentiment. Here, I think if the government just were to front load its privatization and asset sales and disinvestment this year, it will have multiple benefits. One is I think it will really boost the investor sentiment. It will send a signal that the government is committed to reform. I think it will allow the government to uh, spend more on public infrastructure or at least ensure that you don't have large expenditure cuts later this year, which will make fiscal policy pro-cyclical. And third, it will give the bond market confidence that this year's fiscal deficit will not slip and any risk premium over there uh, will, will, will not be priced in. Finally, I think the first year of, a, of, of, of the second term, uh, the government has enormous political capital. I would love to see one big structural reform, maybe labor reform, where we really you know, liberalize the hiring and firing, for example. So if I had to wish this would be this combination of something to address the cyclical, something to boost sentiment, maybe through asset sales, and maybe one structural reform. Now, there is a school of thought, Sajid, which says that it is pretty critical that the interest rate on small savings accounts, which is an administered rate and is currently very high, should be reduced. The argument is that banks are connecting their own deposit rates to the high interest rate on small savings accounts to attract deposits. Can you clarify your own view on this issue? Yes, I'm very much in that school of camp that believes that I think we need to have a system where, like bank rates, small savings rate uh, is linked to an external benchmark. Now, de jure, this is linked, I believe, to the 10-year GSEC, but de facto, uh, you know, as I said, the 10-year GSEC rate has moved down 100 basis points in the last three, four months, and I think the small savings rate has only moved down 10 or 15 basis points. So I'm very much in the camp that believe that is a friction that is impeding monetary transmission. Banks will tell you that it's very hard for them to cut deposit rates for fear of losing that money to small savings. I think one other area that needs to be addressed of financial borrowing, because one motivation for the government to keep small savings rates high is to ensure that they attract enough inflows, because we have seen the last few years that off-balance sheet borrowing has increased. So I think both these will have to move in tandem where the reliance on off-balance sheet is less, that will allow the government to then make this de facto to a market interest rate. And I think the competition of those things will certainly help uh, monetary transmission. Sajid, uh, if I could go back to a couple of other things which we talked about earlier. One is this issue of manufacturing growth. Now, we know that the growth rate uh, 
in the same quarter a year ago was 12%. And so the slowdown we are seeing, at least in this particular quarter, which is really the, the large slowdown, in part is due to that base effect, right? Because if the manufacturing growth had been more like 6 7%, uh, purely by arithmetic with the same levels of output this quarter, Q1 of 1920 would still show up as about 6% or so. Is that correct? I mean, my take on that is one actually needs to go one year further back uh, to, to understand this because the 12.1% growth uh, actually happened on a date four quarters earlier that had contracted 1.7% after demonetization and in the run-up to GST. On that contraction, it grew by 12.1%. So would you get an average growth of 5.2% over those two years. So I'm not sure that there was a base effect because it was as if manufacturing was growing on an average of 5% the previous two years. And therefore, in level terms, the activity in 2018 June quarter uh, was not unduly unfavorable. And therefore, I think the 0.6% in a way does reflect a genuine mm. slowing of magnitude. The other way to get around this is we look at the data sequentially. There was a, there's been a discernible slowing in manufacturing momentum in the first six months of 2019. Good point. You know, there was this in, interview with Rajiv Bajaj on one of the television channels where he said that the auto industry is very cash rich. Now, if that is true, then it would seem that the NBFC borrowing constraint that uh, you mentioned earlier would not bite as heavily. So how does one explain that puzzle? This is a very good question. Our estimate is about 70% is actually going to households uh, to finance consumption. There were two-wheelers, there were uh, housing loans, uh, there were other uh, consumer durables that were being financed. And the remaining 30% would go to real estate developers. So it was the real estate developers that were much more reliant on NBFC wholesale funding and Households were. The auto, or the auto sector was not reliant on the NBFC uh, sector uh, at all much. Uh, A, because as uh, Mr. Bajaj said, they're cash rich, but also they were relying on banks for their borrowing. So really, the slowing of NBFC credit, I would not expect it to affect tightened financial conditions for auto companies. What it does is tighten financial conditions for households who are using that credit to purchase autos, purchase homes, uh, and purchase other consumer non-durables. Uh, and that's where you're seeing the slowdown, that, uh, uh, that, that, it, that it demand for some of the autos and housing is because of these much tighter financial conditions. I had a related question on that, which is uh, the tightness in, on the credit side that you mentioned. When we look for kind of market indicators of you know, how that's actually impacting consumers, are we seeing sort of a tightening in kind of mortgage rates or rates rising or auto loan rates and so forth? Or what is the picture there? Now, Praveen, this is a very good question. Well, the direct manifestation is if you look at NBFC uh, corporate bond spreads, the difference between the AA and the AAA that has really increased dramatically. What you're seeing is some of this NBFC demand has moved to banks, but the problem there is the bank lending model is very different from the NBFC lending model. Banks don't have the last mile connectivity that NBFC did, that relationship lending, so they're not suited to, uh, to, to finance that. But to the extent that demand for bank credit had increased in the last year, 
that is another reason why banks were reluctant to cut uh, lending rates because they had seen higher demand right so incremented credit deposit ratios for banks have picked up materially in the third fourth quarter of 2018 and the first quarter of 2019 and that's why they were reluctant to cut rates now of course with consumption flowing much more holistically you will see credit demand fall more sharply it's showing up in multiple places one is in borrowing cost for uh, nbfc's below aaa and the second is it's showing up in a reluctance for banks to cut lending rates because that demand is moved from nbfc to banks all right last question sajid so what what should we be expecting in next two or three quarters sajid i think the the next quarter uh, would still be a bit of a struggle we've seen both the july and the august auto numbers actually be very sobering uh, the contraction there has been larger than most auto analysts had expected but i'm hopeful that in the second half of the fiscal year we will see a recovery um one is purely statistical uh, the base effect becomes much more favorable in the second half of the fiscal but i think more importantly monetary policy transmission lags are between 3 to 4 quarters and with liquidity uh, in a large surplus i would certainly expect that that transmission will happen and we should see the effects of that in stabilizing uh, aggregate demand in the second half of the year so we do pencil in gdp growth accelerating above 6% in the second half of the year i think the two wild cards here will be one is what happens to the global economy will we get some help from exports in the latest quarter they grew at 5.5% which was half of what they grew four quarters ago which is above 10% and the second is what happens to investor sentiment and business sentiment um if we can break this vicious cycle and the government to its credit uh, over the last few weeks has made a has had a barrage of announcements easing friction trying to attract for fdi these are unambiguously positive i expect there'll be more announcements in the days and weeks to come so if investor sentiment can be business sentiment can be turned around and we get monetary transmission uh, i think second half will certainly not look as worrying as the first half great that's the last word sajid thanks very much great pleasure to have you here thank you sajid real pleasure to be here well listeners that was sajid chinoy chief india economist for jp morgan dissecting the current growth slowdown in the indian economy and offering suggestions for how to overcome this slowdown in the short run and sustain rapid growth in the longer run signing off i am praveen krishna and this is arvind panagaria on the transforming india podcast produced by atisha kumar research scholar at columbia university and edited by rebecca megalwari at insights at columbia university thank you for listening